through third grade are all welcome to attend Children's Church. So that's threes and fours and kindergarten through third grade. And if you've not checked in your children yet, you can do that in the lower lobby right below the sanctuary. Well, good morning again. It is so good to be with you and to worship together. The uh, songs we've sung this morning fit so appropriately with the passage that's about to preach. Uh, You'll find that out in just a few seconds. But those of you who don't know me, my name is Steve Grissom. I'm the associate pastor here at South Shore Baptist Church, and it's my privilege to proclaim God's word to you this morning. My goal is to not undo everything that Cody has done the previous seven weeks. (laughs) He's done a great job leading us through the book of Esther, and so today we are going to look at Esther chapter 8. So go ahead and turn there. And as you turn there, we're going to be talking about a mediator. Who do you think of when you think of a mediator? Someone maybe who intercedes on behalf of a people or a nation? Perhaps you might think of Nelson Mandela, who negotiated the end of a system of segregation in South Africa, bringing peace to the country. Or maybe you think of President John F. Kennedy, who was second-guessed by his own advisors, but was able to negotiate with Soviet leader Khrushchev during the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962, despite the risk of war. Or perhaps you think of William Shatner negotiating a wicked good deal for a hotel on Priceline for you. Now those are some exceptional mediators, but we're going to turn our attention today to a couple more prominent biblical mediators in Esther chapter 8. So I hope you are turned there. We are going to read Esther 8 at this point. Hear the word of our great God. So that same day, King Ahasuerus awarded Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. Mordecai entered the king's presence because Esther had revealed her relationship to Mordecai. The king removed his signet ring he had recovered from Haman and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther put him in charge of Haman's estate. Then Esther addressed the king again. She fell at his feet, wept, and begged him to revoke the evil of Haman the Agagite and his plot he had devised against the Jews. The king extended the gold scepter toward Esther, so she got up and stood before the king. She said, If it pleases the king and I have found favor before him, If the matter seems right to the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let a royal edict be written. Let it revoke the documents the scheme in Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, wrote to destroy the Jews who were in all the king's provinces. For how could I bear to see the disaster that would come on my people? How could I bear to see the destruction of my relatives? King Ahasuerus said to Esther the queen and to Mordecai the Jew, Look, I have given Haman's estate to Esther, and he was hanged on the gallows because he attacked the Jews. Write in the king's name whatever pleases you concerning the Jews, and seal it with the royal signet ring. A document written in the king's name and sealed with the royal signet ring cannot be revoked. So on the 23rd day of the third month, that is, the month Sivan, the royal scribes were summoned. Everything was written exactly as Mordecai 
commanded for the Jews, to the satraps, the governors, and the officials of the 127 provinces from India to Cush. The edict was written for each province in its own script, for each ethnic group in its own language, and to the Jews in their own script and language. Mordecai wrote in King Ahasuerus' name and sealed the edicts with the royal signet ring. He sent the documents by mounted couriers who rode fast horses bred in the royal stables. The king's edict gave the Jews in each and every city the right to assemble and defend themselves, to destroy, kill, and annihilate every ethnic and provincial army hostile to them, including women and children, and to take their possessions as spoils of war. This would take place on a single day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus on the 13th day of the 12th month, the month Adar. So a copy of the text issued as law throughout every province was distributed to all the peoples so the Jews could be ready to avenge themselves against their enemies on that day. The couriers rode out in haste on their royal horses at the king's urgent command. The law was also issued in the fortress of Susa. Mordecai went from the king's presence clothed in royal purple and white with a great gold crown and a purple robe of fine linen. The city of Susa shouted and rejoiced, and the Jews celebrated with gladness, joy, and honor. In every province and every city, wherever the king's command and his law reached, joy and rejoicing took place among the Jews. There was a celebration and a holiday, and many of the ethnic groups of the land professed themselves to be Jews because fear of the Jews had overcome them. Would you pray with me, please? Father God, we are in awe of your word. We could not uh, make it up. And Lord, it is clear it is from your hand. Lord, we thank you and praise you in every little detail, in every big detail, your name is proclaimed. Even in the book of Esther, where we don't physically find your name, but you are providentially working behind the scenes. So Lord, help us to see your intervention today through your word. Lord, help us to rejoice that a mediator has come. Not just Esther, but your son Jesus Christ, the one who pleads on our behalf. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart will be pleasing in your sight. You are our Lord, our rock, and our redeemer. So together, as your people, we proclaim Christ is King. Father, we thank you. Lord, I pray that you will uh, convict us of sin so that we might repent of it. Lord, I pray that we might rejoice in the grace and mercy that's found through Christ and that we might leave here today as a people of hope, not in fear of what is happening tomorrow, but in faith knowing the one who holds tomorrow. Father, we thank you for this time. Lord, lead us as your people. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Well, Esther chapter 8, as we continue in the story, my purpose for today is to show you how God intervenes. God is intervening and how he protects his people from destruction through Esther's role as mediator. And through her role, it leads to celebration. So her intervention and mediation points us to another mediator who frees us and brings joy. 
I'll hold you in suspense to reveal this last mediator till the end of time. But each chapter, week to week, it's like a soap opera unfolding, and at the end of each chapter, we cut to commercial before a significant development in the story. So in case you weren't here last week, let me do a quick recap of Esther chapter 7. So Esther has a feast. The king, Haman, and a lot of other people are there. The king drinks his fair share of wine, asks Esther how he can bestow a nice gift upon her. That's lovely. She says, um, even the gift, even up to half the kingdom. Esther says, how about my life? That would be nice. And my people too. So they're going to be destroyed, but if they could be spared, I'd really appreciate it. Oh, and by the way, the one who is going to destroy my people, he's right here. His name is Haman. Haman froze. The king arose in anger. Haman begs for his life to be spared, but instead is executed. Then the king's anger subsides at the end of chapter 7. So that's chapter 7 in a nutshell, quickly. But now, let's dig into Esther chapter 8. It appears King Ahasuerus has cooled off. He's had his time out. He's now cooled off. And he is done with Haman. And he gives Haman's estate over to Esther. So he's thinking, all is done. All is well. The estate's given to Esther. But not only that, but Mordecai is front and center because his identity and his relationship is now clear. The king's new philosophy, as you see here in chapter 8, is if you are a friend of Esther, then you are a friend of mine. So as we go throughout this chapter, the key word or words is intervention or mediator or mediation. So the first thing I want us to see is the intervention of God leads to a transfer of power. Again, we don't see God's name in this chapter. We don't see God's name in this whole book. But it's clear that God is at work. So Mordecai is promoted. He not only has more seniority, but he is given the authority of the king. The king takes off his ring and he gives it to Mordecai. This is more than a class ring to hang around your neck. It is a signet ring. And inside of it contained the seal of the king. So this is a big deal. This was tantamount to giving him the seal of the kingdom. So it's at this point in the story that God intervenes and there's a transfer of power. Mordecai is now promoted. It's also at this point in the story where Esther approaches the king again. We see Esther's approach changes throughout the book. Now she comes not as the stately queen, but as the begging queen. The second point I want us to see is the intervention of God leads to a plea for life. Just like we saw last week, life is important to God. Life is important to God's people. And Esther pleads for her people. She stands for life. And we see that we are called as well to be advocates for life. Look, look again at chapter... Er, um, at verse 3 in the chapter. In verse 3, we see Esther addresses the king again. She falls at his feet. She wept and she begged him to revoke the evil of Haman. So again, she's desperate. Why is she so desperate? Because life is on the line. And so the stately and strategic queen now pleads with King Ahasuerus in order to avert the evil plan. The evil plan prepared by who? Haman the Agagite. Boo, somebody's paying attention. Good job. 
So Esther is begging. She's begging for her life, but more than her life, the lives of her people, the Jews. So let's pause for a second. Look at the different pleas between last week, Haman, and this week, Esther. Last week, Haman has his own plea, but he is greedy, he's selfish, he is pleading for his own life out of fear in Esther 7. Well, his petition was unsuccessful. Here in today's chapter, Esther falls before the king in faith. She's not in fear like Haman. She falls before the king in faith, pleading not just for her own life, but again, for the lives of her people. So Haman is removed in his plea. Esther's request, her plea, is received by the king. So in it all, I want us to see that God is interceding. He is defending His own people. So what takes place next? The gold scepter is extended towards Esther. In other words, I will now hear you. The scepter is extended. This is her cue to get up, stand before the king to present her formal request. In verse 5 and 6, we see what a crucial moment in the story. Again, look with me at the text. In in verse 6, she says, How could I bear to see the disaster that would come on my people? Again, how could I bear to to see the destruction of my relatives? Twice she says this phrase. What a crucial moment in the story. This is more than a teenager coming in and saying, Dad, can I ask for a huge favor? Dad, can I have the keys to the car? No, this is way bigger than that. She is pleading for the king's favor, knowing that the fate of her people is on the line. So as a mediator, she shrewdly points to the disaster that is looming, to the destruction that is inevitable under the Haman decree. So the king responds to Esther's request. He he speaks bluntly to Esther and Mordecai, standing there, essentially saying, look, I gave you Haman's estate. Haman was hanged on the gallows for his evil plans. What more do you want? That's basically what he says. Perhaps King Ahasuerus thought Esther uh, was greedy like himself. But whether he recognizes the difference in Esther's motives is unclear. But what is clear is that Esther gets her way. God, again, is intervening. intervening. The people-pleasing king says, Go ahead, send a message with my approval, and seal it with my royal signet ring. In essence, He's giving her a blank check. He's saying, write in my name and do whatever you want, do whatever you please concerning the Jews. He does add a word of caution though in saying that whatever is written in the king's name with the king's ring cannot be revoked. Why why is this important? Because another edict was already issued. And so the old edict under Haman is still in effect as well as the new edict. So what does this mean? If Esther and Mordecai are going to write a new edict in the king's name with the king's ring, it will not matter unless it gets there on time. So time is of the essence. This also shows how incapable the king is at uh, giving a message or with making decisions. It shows his people-pleasing decision. Okay, if this is going to please you, go ahead and write an edict. This is going to please you, go ahead and write an edict. Ian Duguid said this, he said, The empire is so law-bound that it is tied in impenetrable bureaucratic knots. 
and its emperor cares absolutely nothing about his people. What a world we live in. So this shows just how crazy the two edicts are. They're at odds with one another. So now, in verse 9, the executive order of sorts is written. You know, as I was looking at this edict, it made me think about the executive order that presidents write. I thought that the last couple of presidents had issued a lot of executive orders. President Obama issued under 300, President Trump just under 200, but they pale in comparison to who's issued the most. Did you know, this is just a little sidebar, that Franklin D. Roosevelt surpasses all presidents in this category. He issued over 3,700 executive orders. I guess the Great Depression had something to do with that. But I digress. Okay, back to verse 9. Here, the executive order or edict isn't sent to the executive branch. It's being sent to 127 provinces for each ethnic group in their own respective language and to the Jews in their own language. This is quite an undertaking. You have secretaries working day and night. The edict is not going out media mail for a buck eighty. No, it is sealed with the king's name and the king's ring sent out how? With royal horses. Perhaps these are thoroughbreds. Perhaps these are Arabian horses. They are traveling at 40 miles per hour so that the edict can get out and save life. Again, that is the goal is to save life. So earlier we see God intervening through Esther's plea to save life. Now look with me in verse 11. In this verse, it look it may seem like the edict is in contradiction to life, but that's not the case. If we read it closely, it's not about destruction as it is about preservation of life. The Jews are now given the right, the authority to stand for their lives, the right to defend themselves, and even to take property from any enemy seeking to harm them. So this edict gave the Jews the same power against their enemies as they had by the former decree against them. So this is a reversal of previous conditions. The edict written under the authority of the king is issued and displayed in every province, again, to all people. So again, in verse 14, we see that the news is going out fast. It's traveling fast. The edict travels almost as quick as a tweet from Governor Baker's desk on the latest update. It is going out quickly so that the people might be spared. So the king has authorized this news, and it leads to rejoicing by the Jews. Now, it's interesting how the Jews respond as the pendulum swings from dread and destruction to now joy and celebration. So now you've got a lot of facts, a lot of details Now let's apply this to our own lives. Let's take notice of how much our behavior is driven by perceptions about what the future holds rather than by reality. If we look in the text, the actual fortunes of the Jews did not change significantly throughout the story. Their livelihoods were not ruined by Haman's edict. There were no instant violent riots leading to killing and looting nor were their futures radically transformed by the new edict, which simply gave them the right to defend themselves and their property. Yet they thought, they thought that their lives were threatened by Haman, so they fasted and they mourned. Now they felt that threat to have lifted, so they respond with joy. 
This is the same experience that we have. It's the same experience that we have when we go to the doctor for a routine physical and he points out a spot on the x-ray. So for weeks, we may torment ourselves with a variety of imagined futures until a second opinion gives us an all-clear. Our health hasn't actually changed over this period, up or down, but our emotional responses surely have, going up and down like a yo-yo. So again, we must remember our behavior can't be driven by perceptions. You and I must ask ourselves the question, in what am I banking my hopes? Or in other words, what are you hoping will happen? That's the question that reveals what we are trusting in. Your desires direct your behaviors. That's what we see here with God's people. That's what we see in our own lives. Our desires direct our behaviors. So I've raced through the first two points. The intervention of God leads to a transfer of power. The intervention of God leads to a plea for life. So that we can spend a few more minutes on this last point, the intervention of God leads to celebration of deliverance. This is again where the story changes, where there's a transition, where we see again God's people see relief. There is deliverance and there is joy. As Pastor Cody has preached through the first seven chapters, he's talked about these royal reversals. We see this situation totally flipped on its head, where the situation changes drastically as God reveals his faithfulness to his people. So that's what takes place in the last few verses. Mordecai the wise, Mordecai the faithful, he comes out after meeting with the king, and he comes out with a flowing robe. He's no longer in dust and ashes. He has a flowing robe of blue and white with an inner purple robe, perhaps reserved for those of royalty. And what else? Mordecai has a great golden crown upon his head. So again, God's servant has now been promoted. Again, earlier in the book, in Esther chapter 4, Mordecai tore his clothes. He put on sackcloth and he put on ashes, but now he has a royal robe. Mordecai comes out from the king's presence and he is met with shouts of joy. God's people rejoice. They are delivered. And so the people celebrate in every province, 127 provinces, from India to Kush, all over the place. They are celebrating. They are rejoicing because their lives have been spared. In verse 15, we see the city of Susa erupt. Makes me think of like a soccer game. Whenever there's a goal, I love sports. Soccer can be frustrating to me. Soccer fans love a 0-0 tie. To me, it drives me crazy. But if there is a goal... The whole stadium erupts. This is what happens here. The city of Susa erupts in celebration. If we look back earlier in the book, in chapter 3, verse 15, the city was thrown into confusion. This is again that reversal from confusion now to celebration. The confusion, the clouds of darkness have been lifted as the light now dawns. The Jews have light. They have gladness. They have joy and honor now. It said, the text, that wherever the king's command and his edict has reached, there is gladness. There is joy. 
their countenance has changed among the Jews. The people were no longer looked upon with contempt because the king has looked upon them with favor. The favor and newfound freedom has led to a feast and a holiday. We are going to feast this week. But their feast went on and on. More will be said about the holiday in this chapter next week. But what about now? How do we respond? How do we respond as God's people? What is our connection to Esther's intervention? We, if we are united to Christ, have much reason to celebrate. We don't have to live in fear. We don't have to have a sour look on our face. We can rejoice. God's people can celebrate. So I have a word for you this morning. If you are united to Christ by faith, you can celebrate. You have reason to rejoice. If you are following Jesus Christ, you have a mighty mediator on your side. Not just Mordecai, not just Esther, Jesus Christ. He is the last mediator, the best mediator, the mighty mediator, and He is on your side. So as people who have been spared by the mediation of King Jesus, you can and you should celebrate your deliverance. The Jews had good reason to celebrate, but Jews, Gentiles from every tribe, every tongue, every nation across the world have reason to celebrate. The Messiah has come. He is our rescuer. This is what 1 Timothy says. 1 Timothy chapter 2 says, There is one God and one mediator between God and men. Who is it? The man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So as people who follow the King, as people who are united to Christ, you have reason to celebrate. Listen to what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said. I love this quote. He says, Christ is the mediator, not only between God and man, but between man and man, between man and reality. In other words, because of Christ, there is forgiveness. Because of Christ, there is faith. Because of Christ, there is freedom. Because of Christ, we don't have to live in fear any longer. So Jesus is the mediator that you and I need. So see the goodness of God in providing Jesus Christ at just the right time to live a pure life, to die the perfect death that you and I could not live. You and I could not die the death that He died. So Jesus is the mediator between you and between God. He hung on the cross He was laid in a tomb, but the Son of God, the Son sent from heaven, rose again. This is why we rejoice. This is why the angels roar and God's people proclaim, Christ is King. So for the Christian, we do not have to live in fear anymore. Jesus Christ, the perfect mediator, stands in your place. You can have peace with God if you are united to the Son of God. You have reason to rejoice. This is why Philippians 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Why why do we get to rejoice? Because Christ has come. Why do we get to rejoice? Because Christ has freed us. Why do we get to rejoice? Because Christ has forgiven us. 
because we have been, been brought near to the one and only holy God. So if you are united to Christ this morning, then you have a reason to celebrate. But let me draw us back to the text one more time. In verse 17. Look in verse 17. In verse 17, it says, In every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his law reached, joy and rejoicing took place among the Jews. There was a celebration and a holiday. That We already talked about that part. But it says, Many of the ethnic groups of the land professed themselves to be Jews because fear of the Jews had overcome them. So in this last verse, we find the Jews rejoicing. But the other people in the land, they weren't rejoicing. What were they doing? They were, they were scrambling. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm a Jew. All of a sudden, they're joining the Jews, not out of faith, but out of fear. Again, this is a complete reversal of the previous, their previous ad- attitude. Suddenly, now all of a sudden, it's advantageous to be a Jew. Who would have thought? So, let me, let me speak to you this morning. If you are not united to Christ, if you are not a Christ follower this morning, let me encourage you to trust in Christ. As we think about the other groups of people who joined the Jews for physical reasons, we could think about others. People who go to church, they identify with the community of faith for all kinds of reasons. Maybe for political affluence. Maybe for to be with family. Maybe another reason. But just being in church on a Sunday or any day is not the basis for belonging to Christ. What is? Faith in Jesus Christ. Faith in Christ is our basis. So as I close, we should ask ourselves the question, am I trusting in Christ's death in my place? Am I trusting in Christ's death in my place? Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank You and praise You for Your Word. Lord, we thank You that You have intervened not only in Mordecai's life and in Esther's life, but you have intervened in our lives. And so because of Christ, because of His mediation, because He plead, pleaded on our behalf, we are forgiven. We are delivered. So as a result, we can celebrate as people who know the living God. So Lord, lead us now as Your people to rejoice to celebrate. And Father, I pray for anyone here this morning who's not trusting in Christ's death that today will be the day of salvation. As we have already sang, You are mighty to save. You can save anyone. You can save any individual here this morning. So Lord, I pray that You might save individuals this morning. I pray that they might say yes to Jesus Christ. And Lord, we thank You and praise You for the work that You are doing. And Lord, as your people, we rejoice, Christ is King. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, please stand as we give praise to Jesus Christ, our great high priest, our mediator.